Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Daniel High, your host of The High Road, a new podcast about one doctor's perspective on all things related to medicine. In each episode, we'll be pulling back the curtain on unique experiences and thoughts that doctors have that a lot of non-medical folks want to hear about and learn from. We'll view most topics through a medical lens and explore various other areas of life, including faith, finances, ethics, and whatever else you, our listeners, want to hear us weigh in on. So, let's begin. All right, well, uh, welcome back again to The High Road. And uh, once again, I have a great guest that I'm very excited about visiting with today, uh, which I'll introduce here in just a moment, John Richardson. But before I do that, we're going to do the usual high road shtick and have yet another quote. And uh, this one, I may have already used this one, but it's so good and so pertinent to today's guest that we're going to use it again. This is by Sir William Osler, who's the father of modern Western medicine. And he says, the desire to take medicine is perhaps the greatest feature that distinguishes men from animals. So my guest today is John Richardson. And uh, hey, John. Hey, thanks for having me, Daniel. I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. This is going to be fun. So uh, you and I go way back. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come and have this conversation. Looking forward to, to talking. So uh, I'm just going to quickly... Uh, take a glance down his CV. He sent this to me earlier today. And, uh, you know, John and I have known each other off and on for years. Uh, he used to call on me when I was in uh, private practice here in Black Mountain as a pharmaceutical rep. And, uh, so and y'all moved here, what year was that? 2008. 2000, okay. Yep. So, so it's been a while. Uh, but uh, John and I used to talk and always enjoyed visiting with him back then. And then uh, never really... Uh, got a chance to look over his many accomplishments. Uh, John, um, actually of interest is, uh, has an MDiv, which I didn't realize that. So, uh, I'd love to, uh, talk with you about that some other time or maybe a little bit this time, but, yeah. uh, from uh, Columbia Theological Seminary and, and yet not a pastor. Not, uh, no, not a pastor. Definitely not a pastor. <laughs> but, uh, but at least we know you're a good guy now, right? So you're a master of God. Well, so that's yeah. good. Um, but uh, John spent uh, many years in the pharmaceutical industry and uh, also with uh, the medical technology industry through Medtronics. Um, he's appears to be quite a good salesman based on these numbers here. I'm certainly not an expert on this, but uh, uh, he was with uh, Pfizer for a while. And uh, who else were you with, John? So I was with Pfizer back in the day when... Pfizer was considered a Fortune 5 company. When you talk about Fortune 500, mm. um, I was, I don't know how I ended up at, at Pfizer. I had a friend who was in the industry and asked for my resume, and, and Pfizer was expanding at the time back in 1998. So that's when I jumped in. Not really, I had thought about med school, I had thought about law school, I thought about business school, and had an opportunity to go to work for Pfizer and get a business education and have them contribute to a 401k plan and give me a car to drive. And I thought, you know, this is, I'll check it out and see what it was. And it was, it was fabulous. I had a fantastic business education, uh, some of the best sales training in the world. Um, To put it in perspective, uh, pharmaceutical companies are, are considered made companies or successful when they get $1 billion product. If, if a company gets a billion dollar product, they're considered to have made it. And at that point, Pfizer had $9 billion products. Mm. Every product that I sold for Pfizer was the number one product in its class in the world at that time. So um, of course, most people know of big blue. So I was hired with the division in 1998 that launched Viagra, the steer division in yes. 1998. So that's, um, and it, you know, now the launch of Viagra is used as an example in many business schools in terms of how not to launch a new product. Interesting. So well, we'll, we'll come back to that maybe. Yeah. So uh, that business experience that you've had has been really helpful for you in other areas too. I see you're a successful fundraiser for um, nonprofits. And I, I know just, you know, reading on social media and stuff that you're a big advocate around town for helping people out that are struggling. And I remember back when the pandemic hit, uh, and I'll just toss in here, you're now a restaurateur to add to your list of, uh, 
accomplishments, uh, which include uh, also being a, an athlete over the years. And uh, but you uh, you actually got involved uh, a year or so ago or two years ago with cooking meals for people who couldn't so, afford their food right, during right, the right. pandemic. When, and, the, when the pandemic hit, um, well, I opened a restaurant right after Yesco. I'd been with I've been with Pfizer. I've been with Novartis, a Swiss company. I've been with Abbott. Uh, I've been with ASI twice now, um, a Japanese company. Uh, but I was with Abbott in 2010 and had just survived a corporate layoff. Um, and I was one of the 50% of the employees that was retained and realized that that was what the future of the pharmaceutical industry was going to look like mm. and thought, I need a safety net. And so just on a whim, I opened a restaurant 12 years ago um, and now have continued to run the restaurant and expanded to food trucks and a brewery and another project that we're working on. So that's my safety net. But I think, you know, looking at my, my career, I'm a salesperson yep. and that's, that's what I'm good at. I'm, I'm good at selling a vision, whether it's a vision of what we can do if we raise money together or what can we can do if we partner together to find a specific patient type that could benefit from the product that I'm selling mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're also good at meeting people's needs. Well, yeah. So you, we, um, when COVID hit and, the shutdown happened with my restaurant. I immediately laid off, I think, 23 employees. Mm. I, I kept my executive chef. And then we realized that we had $10,000 worth of product that was going to go bad if we didn't do something with it. Mm. And we also realized that we had 23 employees that were now unemployed um, in the service industry. Typically, folks don't have a lot of savings in the service industry. And we thought, well, we'll just cook meals for our, our folks and anybody else that needs them. And it turned out that I think over the four or five months after that, the shutdown happened, we probably gave away, I think it was close to $40,000 worth of product that we cooked a hundred meals a day, four or five times a week that folks would come. And within 15 minutes, the meals were gone. So yeah, it was, that was amazing. I I remember thinking, wow, that is really creative. And, and uh, I was really proud of, proud of you to say, to be able to say, (laughs) I know that guy, I know that guy. He's He's my buddy. Well, it was, you know, the, I'm, when people say, what do I do? I'm a community builder. Um, yeah. I'm a social entrepreneur. I believe in people. I believe in relationships. And I think that's in terms of my sales career, that's one of the ways that I've been successful. I think that's why most folks are successful is through relationships. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got here today. We've yep. got a relationship. That's you right. Know? And so. you were kind enough to, uh, to come and visit with us. And I know you've had, uh, you've been extremely busy here lately and I know that's a, a sacrifice. So certainly want to, uh, respect your time this evening. So, um, so I, I'll just, uh, like I told you earlier, you know, the, the reason why I brought you here, not, for one thing, just because I, I wanted to catch up with you and say hi, but, uh, you know, we hear a lot of negativity these days about, you know, quote, big pharma unquote. And, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is to give people a chance to hear, a guy who has worked for big pharma, a guy who's represented yeah. drugs, you know, uh, sold drugs, going to doctors, you know, um, and it, that's, uh, you guys are sort of, uh, easy to, to bash, yeah. you know, and I know you yeah. get a lot of negative press and I just think, uh, it's important to hear real people that sure. work for real industries that are, are doing some good and, and, and maybe also some, uh, like every industry, there's, there's always a, oh, absolutely. a see me underbelly, um, Absolutely, and, and one of the things here on the high road that that we try to do is is really try to take a balanced view, and we try to focus on, like you said, lifting up people and trying to get at the truth, trying to get at uh, help people think outside the box, help people think creatively, and not sure. just go tribal on on so many issues. So, um, I'm going to kind of ask you the 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 opening shot here is what do you enjoy most about being a rep? So. Yeah. And I've been a rep off and on. I've split my time probably half the time between the nonprofit world, raising money for, for nonprofits. And, and then half the time, sometimes out of necessity uh, in the pharma world, it has to be the relationships, whether it's the relationships with the providers. And I think mainly now um, that's where the relationship is because there's no patient contact. But I think going back in, in history, I entered Big Pharma before it was actually labeled Big Pharma. Uh-huh. 
And that's important for folks to understand that the the title Big Pharma really didn't get labeled um, until after Big Tobacco. Interesting. And I and I could be wrong. And please don't. I am not an expert on this um, by any means. I'm just recounting. So I've been in the industry, in and out of the industry since '98. Um, big Tobacco went down in early 2000, sometime, and the Big Tobacco settlement happened. And then it was very public that the next target was Big Pharma. And Ah. that's where the label Big Pharma came from. Before then, it was just the pharmaceutical industry. And Pfizer, uh, that I was working for, really um, is the one that led the way in terms of marketing medicine towards patients and towards Mm. providers. Mm. Um, So let me, and let me also say very clearly, I am a capitalist, not a socialist. I'm a small business mm-hmm. owner. I believe in the capitalist economy that we live yep. in. And uh, I'm a salesperson, so I'm, I'm good at going out and selling. But prior to the label of Big Pharma, um, medicine was not really marketed the way that we see it mm-hmm. marketed now. In 1997 was when direct-to-consumer advertising was legalized. Before 1997, pharmaceutical companies couldn't run advertisements on television. Wow. And even post 97, it wasn't until the early 2000s when the first few companies dipped their toe into direct to consumer advertising. And so prior to to that, it was a very different world. And so the the label Big Pharma over the last 20 years has developed into what it is now. I think that one of the things we can well, I don't know if we can all agree on it. I would say as a consumer, so as, as somebody that, that goes to see doctors and appreciates the value that doctors are able to do, I think a lot of folks will agree that the medical system is broken. And I agree with you there. Yeah. And we talk about that most every podcast, <laughs> one form or another. And I think most pharma reps would agree that the system is broken. Um, and yet it's the system that we have and we all have to go out and, or not all of us, but most of us have to go out and have a job. Most of us have to take care of our families. Most of us have to have healthcare. The reason that I came back into the industry in 2009 was because Obamacare didn't exist. And I had a pre-existing uh, condition and was uninsurable. So when I, I left Pfizer in 2003, went to Columbia Seminary, got my uh, Master of Divinity, um, came back into the nonprofit world. When I decided to leave the nonprofit world, I had to get a job with a company that had a group health insurance plan. Okay. Because I could not go to the, the marketplace didn't exist. Um, I have a, a titanium aortic valve and I had to have health insurance right? and I couldn't get it any other way unless I joined back with a, a corporation and I had a skill as a, you know, I'd worked for one of the top pharmaceutical companies in the world. In fact, when I went to work for Pfizer, statistically, it was easier to get into Harvard med school than it was to get hired by Pfizer. Wow. Um, because they had created this great new drug called Viagra and everybody thought, wow, this is a game changer. In terms of what the pharmaceutical industry used to be, um, I was fortunate enough in that I got to see what it's like to introduce a disease state. Yeah. So if you yeah. were a physician in 1998, yeah. I would have come and seen you and said, Dr. High, I want to talk to you about erectile dysfunction. Yes, the new term. And you would have said, well, I don't know what that means. And I would then talk to you about PDE5, PDE6, PDE8, and phosphodiesterase and how it interacts in the body and why it's important, an important indicator that if certain parts of our body are clogged because the blood flow is blocked and a man is having a problem getting an erection, then possibly there's plaque buildup in other parts of their body. So it is really important, doctor, that you ask about a man's erections 
because it can be a leading indicator as to the fact that they might be at greater risk for having a heart attack because their heart might have plaque buildup mm-hmm. as well. So that's why you need to ask these men how their sex life is. I, I love the collateral benefit there, which, <laughs> which also allows you to go, oh, is there something we could do about this, doctor? Yeah. yeah. And so, um, so that's you know one of the ways that Pfizer contributed to what Big Pharma has become is that all of a sudden... Pfizer started, and Pfizer is an American-owned company headquartered out of New York um, until they may have recently relocated their headquarters for tax reasons out of the country. I, I can't remember exactly where they're headquartered now. Uh, but we're an American company, and we started marketing medicine right around the launch of Viagra. And that's where everything started to change. Interesting. And I'm trying to remember, isn't that around the time that uh, Purdue also created OxyContin? Wasn't that you in know, the late I, 90s? I, I, I think it was. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of, yes. Speaking um, of direct-to-consumer advertising. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Pfizer was at the forefront of going in. And up until that point, drug reps, it, it was a really honorable profession. Um, up until that point? Well, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> so this was late 90s. And my training for Pfizer, it, it, it's unbelievable because now you you go to training with a pharmaceutical company and you maybe get a week of training interesting um back in 1998 i spent i think maybe three months between reston virginia and rye new york in training and i was the expert in the field and when i went to see a physician they actually would set time to sit down and talk with me mm. because I might not know about all these other things, but in terms of phosphodiesterase, right. I could talk your ears off. Sure. And it was something that you didn't know about. And, right. and that, that's the way historically, which, you know, we see, we hear these stories of these old guys and now yeah. we're the old guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, it honestly used to be an honorable profession. Um you had one drug and you called on the same doctor for, you know, the same set mm. of doctors for 20 years. And there wasn't the innovation that we see now mm. that um, the research has happened. I think everybody knows Pfizer nowadays because of the COVID vaccine. Right. I was with Pfizer in 2001 or 2002. And we, as I mentioned, we had $9 billion products and, I remember when we spent $2.3 billion in a research and development facility in Groton, Connecticut. And we all said, why on earth are we spending that much money on R? It was the largest mm. R&D facility in the world at that point. Wow. And that's the research facility that, that was able to come up with the COVID vaccine yep. um, 20 years later. And so that's the end of the story. But, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's how the industry has changed. We have this massive R&D facility, this massive R&D pipeline that are able to, with technology, right. with everything that's going on, they're able to come up with these life-changing drugs like sure. the COVID vaccine. And Viagra. And Viagra. And Viagra. I, I'm going to let you comment on what Viagra was originally uh, created to do. So originally Viagra was a heart medication, right? Exactly. That's and, what I recall. Because you, so, you know more than I do. Well, yeah. It. So the study was was happening. And at the end of any study, uh, they, you know, were, I don't know why they ended the study early. I can't remember. But uh, the men who were on whatever the precursor was to Viagra didn't want to give their samples back of, of whatever they were researching. It, it was for, because PDE, phosphodiesterase, it's everywhere. It's in the eyes. It's, uh, it's, it, they're different PDE5, PDE6, PDE whatever. Um, and some of it is specific for the heart. Some of it's specific for uh, get, getting an erection, right? And so the one that they had that these men were being trialed on helped them achieve an erection when they couldn't before. And these guys wouldn't give their medicine back. And they were like, well, what's going on here? And that's how, how bad yeah. it was. That, now, how did that well, affect the blinding of the study? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I think I don't have the placebo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And so you had this useful side effect, which turned out to actually be the, um, the benefit, the greater right. benefit. I and mean, we still have some patients on uh, similar drugs, uh, and it's for pulmonary, hy- pulmonary artery hypertension. Yeah. It's the one that we still use it for. But 
it has a certain side effect. So, right. um, yeah, that's pretty interesting history. So, um, all right. So I'm just going to circle back a little bit and, um, and, uh, you mentioned that you used to call on doctors and, uh, um, I want to hear some crazy doctor stories. I love hearing, uh, people <laughs> like mock and shame people of my own profession. It just makes <laughs> me smile. So I want to hear a crazy doctor story or maybe like your worst call or like your oh, craziest doctor. Well, it was the wild west back in the day. Yeah. It really was. So before I met you, before I left the industry the first time, um, I, my first award with Pfizer was for spending the most amount of money. <laughs> and I, and I, I finished second in my district. I finished second behind a buddy of mine, Scott Blunda, who spent more. He would take doctors out playing golf. He was a golfer. I didn't helpful skill. Yeah. Um, he had great relationships though. They yeah. were able to get out and spend four hours together. Uh, when I was in Baltimore, I called on Johns Hopkins and which is one of the holiest of holies or used to be one of the holiest of holies in the medical industry. And, um, but we had a great relationship and um, I would I would just have a blast with those people. I I called on three residency programs. Mm. And so this was I was single at the time. They're, you know, three meals a day, seven days a week. That's twenty-one meals a week. I ate out twenty-eight meals a week. Wow. I would um I would call on emergency rooms with Zithromax. Oh yeah. Uh and I would I loved it, man. I would every, <laughs> every morning I'd show up at an emergency room with two dozen donuts, right at shift change, because I knew I would get the doctors who were going off shift as uh-huh. well as the doctors that were coming on shift. And there was, but my introduction into the pharmaceutical industry, when I was riding with my friend, Gerald Johnson, to see if this was something I was going to like, he picked me up in somewhere in Baltimore and we're going somewhere early in the morning and we pull up and he pops the trunk of his car and I walk around and there are probably six or eight dozen donuts <laughs> in the back of his car. And he's like, here, grab one of these. And I, I'm following him in and we're walking through this door in a hospital and it says absolutely no pharmaceutical reps. <laughs> Except with and donuts. And I, I look at <laughs> Joe and I'm like, Joe, what's that? And he's like, oh, that doesn't mean us. Mm-hmm. Because we, we were like, it was, it was something else, man. It, that's what happens when you have billion dollar products right. that everybody wants right. and you had samples. Yeah. And so like, it, it was insane. I would hand out Z packs. I, I, I'm glad the statute of limitations is up on this. <laughs> I had, I had Zithromax. So anybody that had a sniffle, a cough, a cold, oh, whatever yeah. would call me. I'd send them a Z pack. I also had Diflucan or Diflucan, however you say. Yeah. They made fun of me because I said it the wrong way. So, so that was for women with yeast infection. It right. was the the little pink pill that women know about. Right. So, if there was any office that I couldn't get into, uh-huh. I'd just pull out a sample of Diflucan <laughs> and give it to the receptionist, <laughs> and they'd wave me back. Yep. Um. So it's your fault that we have antibiotic resistance. You're confessing it right here, right tonight. Well, high, so I called on the, the infectious. I, I called on Thomas Bartlett at, at Hopkins, who is the the grandfather of infectious disease, and I called on all the the guys. I called on the the STD clinic in yeah, yeah. in Baltimore, and at that point, this was late '90s, so there was an AIDS epidemic that mm-hmm. was still raging, and mm-hmm. they correlated the um, HIV and infection rate along with chlamydia and gonorrhea. Sure. And that's what Zithromax, one yeah. gram stat of Zithromax yeah. was chlamydia. Got, so I called on that STD clinic in, in Baltimore. I called on those ID doctors and they would say that it was really due to the cattle industry right. in terms of injecting cows with antibiotics. Definitely so could, not doctors. It was not right. doctors over prescribing antibiotics. Definitely yeah. not, especially not Hopkins doctors. And the veterinarians and farmers will say, no, it's, it's China and India. They're the ones that are causing it, right? So, uh, well, those are those are some good stories. Yeah, I, I have a I have a crazy uh, pharma. Uh, I actually have several. Um, I remember a couple of years back. Actually, it was many years back. I, it shows how old I am. I can't remember. But um, I had a, a rep. Uh, he was a younger rep up in Virginia, and he called on on our office where I was staying, and he had this product which I personally think is a. Well, I'm not going to say this. Um, <laughs> Let's just say it doesn't fit with my prescribing habits, um, but it was extended release Xanax. 
Okay. So if you know, obviously you know about what Xanax does. It's a ultra short acting uh-huh. sedative. Okay. Uh-huh. So we have medium acting sedatives. We have long acting sedatives. Why would you take a short acting sedative and then try to make it an extended release? Okay. So this is, this is a, what is it you would call a me too product, right? Or it's exactly. a product that doesn't exactly. really quite have a reason. Um, of course, the Xanax extended release people are going to boycott my show now. But um, anyway, but yeah, I remember he, he came sort of sidling up into the office and uh, and he goes, he goes, Dr. High, he goes, uh, I got this great new product, you know, and of course it's really just a patent tweak so they can right. resell it, relabel right. it, right? Because they switched it. And he goes, it's this Xanax extended release. He goes, I'd sure love to to uh, to take you guys out to dinner sometime soon and uh as soon as I see a couple of those scripts come across my uh, my uh, yeah. record there, then we'll get you guys set up in the office and the staff, and we'll yeah. go have a great time. As soon as I see those scripts, and I'm just like, oh, no. Yep. Um, yep. But that was, uh, obviously, the quid pro quo was uh, explicitly described. Oh, yeah. We all know that there's, you know, when I was in private practice, we used to have reps come, and, you know, they were, like you say, they're just people trying to make a living. And uh, most of them were well-educated and they were, they made a, a good effort. And um, sometimes they did bring good information, you know, um, yep. but by the time I got out of private practice, you know, nobody ever offered me like the golf trip to Hawaii. Like I missed out on all the good corrupt, right. the right, good right, corrupt. Right. The gas eras. and go. Yeah. Where you go and you, you fill your car up with gas and the, the rep details you next to the gas pump uh-huh. and they put gas in uh-huh. the car. See, I never got that either. Like I never got any of those things. That's when, you know? yeah, that was all of a sudden that was around. So, so yeah, I was in training for three and a half months and then all of a sudden now it's, it's a week's time mm-hmm. and, and everybody followed the the model that Pfizer had by flooding the, the industry with, with reps and it became a marketing ploy. It right. wasn't about educating physicians anymore. Right. It wasn't right. about helping, you know, patients. Mm. It was about who can sell the most scripts. How can we change prescribing mm. habits? And if we can build a relationship with a provider, we can take them out to dinner. Um, and your wife. And their wife. And, oh, my gosh, is unbelievable. Like I said, I won an award because I spent so much money taking yep. people out. Um you know, it was a crazy time. It was one of the reasons I had to leave. Did you feel like that put put things in an awkward place eventually for you or? Yeah, it, it, well, you know, I left the first time I gave myself five years when I came into the industry. I did not want to get the golden handcuffs. And in this mm. industry, the golden handcuffs apply to physicians. They apply to pharmaceutical reps, but I did not want to be beholden to having to make the payments. So having Mm. to go out and and sell something that I didn't believe in. Um, It was great being with Pfizer because there was no question. Every product we had was industry leader. Oh yeah. You guys had excellent stuff. And so then people started competing and doing gas and go programs. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I sold Celebrex and Merck's you know, product was Viox. Viox yep. eventually was pulled from the market. Yep. And you guys were still there. <laughs> yep. And, you know, but Merck was doing the, the gas and goes. Yeah. Where the doctors would come, you give them like a gallon of gas or a, a tank See, full of I gas. Never, I never got to be unethical. Like, I, I missed out on all the good ethics. Well, you know. and, you know, one of the interesting things to see is that Bextra, do you remember Bextra? Oh, yeah. I remember Bextra, Bextra was a great product, especially for diabetic toe. Mm. Um, it was a, a heavy duty antibiotic, which really has its niche, but the, the reps, so I sold Zithromax, which is used for a lot, had much more in, greater indications, yep. Yep. but there are a whole lot more patients out there that have, uh, sinus infections yes. compared to diabetic foot. So what did the, the Pfizer rep that sold Bextra saw that, well, if I can get some of those, uh, sinus infection patients mm. on Bextra, then I'll hit my numbers and I'll get paid more. And that's just human nature. Yeah. If all of a sudden you can get a $40,000 bonus versus a $5,000 wow. bonus by selling it for uh, sinusitis versus just diabetic foot or diabetic toe, 
then why not do that? Mm. Why not take lunch to the allergists in town? Mm-hmm. Why not call on those mm-hmm. physicians, the primary care physicians that are seeing patients that are coming to them saying, doctor, I have this sinus infection that won't mm-hmm. go away. Mm-hmm. Bextra was eventually pulled because it was overprescribed, right. mainly because it was, I don't think there was any ill intention by the reps that were trying to, to talk the providers into using it for yep. sinusitis. They were just doing what they were being told to do, and that's where the market was. Mm. And I think that's the balance of, okay, we're capitalists in a capitalist country. Um, is healthcare, you know, is this something that we want to? Uh, I guess it's the the balance of how do we how do we dance through this when sure. you have a, a multi billion dollar company that is investing in research and development that is going to be able to provide faster than any other company out there, provide a solution that saves lives like the COVID vaccine right? because of the sales that they've been able to achieve and then reinvest in Mm -hmm. the R and D pipeline. That's Mm -hmm. the debate that goes on. Well, okay. If we take the capitalist perspective, if we say that this is a a socialist system, Mm -hmm. there's no incentive for companies like Pfizer to invest in the R and D and we won't be able to have the COVID vaccine for the next COVID when when it hits. Well, that's, that's, uh, you know, one of our, earlier podcasts that we talked about was the issue of how every payer source, every structure of financing healthcare has its pluses and its minuses. And so what you're just describing there is, yeah, you know, capitalism does a great job of, of bringing new products to market. Uh, But on the other hand, you know, it also fuels, you know, what are basically predatory practices. And I think, you know, as physicians and pharmaceutical reps and pharmacists and all of us in healthcare, we can so easily be drawn into, you know, I don't want to say quite to the point of snake oil salesman, but it, it, it pulls in that direction and you get to where you're, you know, you really, um, if you have a financial incentive to, to believe something, you're going to tend to believe that. And so that's just the, the human nature that we are, you know, we, we like to link our, our, morals to our pocketbooks. Yeah. Well, and, and we're also human. We're going to take the path of least resistance, right? Exactly. So when you were in private practice and you had a patient that came to you and you thought, okay, product A is the best product for them. Your next question is, well, what kind of health insurance do you have? Yes. Because let's see where, you know, who is your pharmacy benefit provider? What, what is on your formulary? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking at, you know, one of the questions that we, we have to talk about is that, so a pharma rep, I have no idea. I, I, I've been in and out of the industry, you know, say they make $100,000 a year. Um, I, I saw that the CEO of Moderna, which helped Pfizer come out with the new uh, COVID vaccine, just got a $986 million golden parachute. So almost a billion dollars and something about that system is is broken well and and that a lot of that money is coming directly from the taxpayers so you know you used the word capitalist early on and i i i agree that that's what it is but it's not really pure capitalism in healthcare we've got a a sort of a blended capitalism in kind of a little c capitalism we don't really have real market forces we have socialized medicine essentially because the federal government is subsidizing yep. something like last time i read 70 or 80 percent of total health care costs sure, sure are actually paid for by the federal government they just get funded through private sectors so you know um there's only a few areas of medicine where that where we do have real capitalism. Right. And that's basically in concierge medicine. And, <laughs> vanity and, medicine. And van- well, some of it's vanity, but some of it is, look, I'd like to be able to call my doctor and talk to my doctor. Yep. Some of it is that. And yeah. that's, you know, Well, and I think that's gonna... the future. I, I, you know, I go see a direct primary care yeah. provider because yeah. it's convenient and because I can afford to. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, you know, this is just my opinion, but I, I think that the future of medicine is we're going to have a, a a two-payer system. We're going to have mm-hmm. um, universal health care so that there are some basic necessities that folks will be able to 
to, to be entitled to. And then for folks that have money and can get to the front of the line and can pay to have mm. the hip replacement sooner than, mm. than somebody that's on Medicaid or Medicare, then, then they can do that. Um, but it's a broken system. And uh, I think in terms of pharma reps, I'm an optimist in the sense that I believe that more people wake up every morning wanting to do good in the world than, than, than not. Uh, yeah. And I think most farmer reps are good people wanting to do the right thing and are, are dealing with the hand that they're dealt back to the sure. point of you being told you can prescribe this medication because this is what's on your formulary. Um, you as a provider want to do what's best, but you got to play within the rules sure. of, of the game that, that you've been yep. dealt. Yep. So, um, you know, and, I, and I'll just kind of toss this back. My experience with um, my concerns, and they're not really specific for pharmaceutical industry, but um, I think uh, one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is non-pharmaceutical paths to good health. We talk mm-hmm. a lot about that. Yeah. And of course, Americans love pills. We absolutely love absolutely. a pill for every single perceived or real malady. And and I do think you mentioned earlier about the direct uh, pharmaceutical advertising to consumers. And I guess that, you know, the, 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 the most catastrophic case of that, that I can think of is Oxycontin, yeah. you know, which just has, is still devastating our society in terms of the cascade effect of, mm-hmm. of people who were, became addicted to opioids, quote, legitimately, unquote, because they were prescribed medicines. And then later those pills were not available. And you know, I think that relates to you know, the heroin and fentanyl and stuff that's now on the street. Yep. People have already developed a taste for those. We know uh, that it does. For those opioid does. receptors. And that was all done through the pharma industry. But but honestly, you know, I I actually still blame doctors. And I, I got to tell you, I have been amazed at how, um, at how uh, indulgent the public has been towards the medical profession and the fact that, you know, we're the guys that... Uh, you know, men and women who went to medical school, we studied pharmacology. We know how the receptors work. Yeah. And, you know, when when Purdue Pharma showed up with their uh, advertising in the 90s and 2000s, you know, I was in residency. And I remember, um, I, I think I'd asked you earlier about whether you'd seen um, Dope Sick by, on the yeah. Hulu series. And, yeah. you know, th- that series is just amazing because they did such a great job of capturing the techniques that the reps used and, and even the, the expressions that they used. I remember those. I actually remember them doing the, the lines oh, yeah. from that movie. It's incredibly accurate. Um, so, you know, this, this whole pattern of, of physicians sort of being led down the primrose path and, you know, over the cliff is, is a real thing. And I think it's a, a catastrophic failure of the medical profession that we failed to be professional at that point. And, you know, that's a whole nother conversation about the way society trusts physicians and says, Oh, well, we'll let, we'll let you guys guard the hen house. You guys are safe, you know, and I've seen where the, the, uh, the Fox was guarding the hen house and, and uh, you know, the, the opioid epidemic happened through prescribed medications yep. under medical supervision for the most part. And it still happened. Yeah. And and I think, so I think, you know, I think there's plenty of blame to go around, but I do think that, that pharmaceutical industry has, was a part of that with their Absolutely. advertising. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, other things, you, you know, um, like you said earlier, the products that you promoted were typically um, really good products. They had, niche markets. They were, uh, things that, uh, treated a condition that needed to be treated or that people perceived a need for. And this, there was one product that did it. Yep. And that that's incredible to see when that happens. But then when somebody comes out with the extended release Xanax, you know, yeah. I look at that and go, I- I'm not sure that that's a product that, that offers a lot of value to my yeah. patient. Um, and yet it costs, you know, however many times more than the generic. And I, you know, I think, so I guess my my three concerns. One is, you know, contributing to the over-medicating of society away from diet, nutrition, exercise, spiritual health. Uh, and then, you know, the way more expensive products get, get pushed to the front of the line, yep. even though they have marginal benefit. Right. Of course, that cost gets 
distributed through society, through insurance. And I guess one thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, do you feel like that, that pharma has influence through the government in terms of like the FDA and <laughs> regulatory policy? Well, yeah. I mean, that's, why do we have a donut hole with Medicare? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that it, it's just, when you look at uh, the Louisiana Senator who left politics to head up pharma, the pharmaceutical yeah. Alliance of America. Yep. Um, it was it Billy Tozen or, or whoever it was. I mean, that was just a deal. I, um, I, our, the system is broken in so many ways. And I think we, you know, this is a much bigger conversation about politics. We've become so polarized. Right. Um, yes, definitely. There is, there are issues there that, Pharma reps have no control over. Right. And in terms of going out and doing what they're told, um, when you have CEOs of companies making billions of dollars mm. compared to somebody that's trying to go out and, you know, make an honest living and have health care right. for their family, you do the best that you can. Sure. And I think, you know, the, one of the questions is, why is there a, a patent life on, on pharmaceuticals? Um, that, that's why we see so many of the Me Too products. I, right. And I, I don't know. These are questions that are far above my pay grade. Um, but that's why we see the Me Too products coming out is because the lifeline of a product is what, somewhere between 11 and 15 years, maybe right. what it used to be. And so the company would tweak the, the molecule yeah. a little bit. And sometimes yeah. the tweaks would be great. So right. Right. like uh, Neurotin and Lyrica. Lyrica yeah. may be a better product yeah, than Neurotin. It and it's for some people. Yeah, for some people. And, and so then you've got a good rep that can describe to you why exactly. that's important or, you right. know. And that's, that's an example right there of where, you know, pharma does provide real value to society. It, it produces certain products that really are helpful. You know, I have patients that don't tolerate um, gabapentin. Yeah. They, they, get, they get terrible side effects or it's ineffective. You switch them to pregabalin. Yeah, it's a more expensive product. There's yeah. no question. But it also works better for certain people. There's, yeah. That's a great example. Um, what, what do you feel like... You know, you said you're you're a hopeful guy. Uh, obviously, you believe in in the market, even when it's uh, terribly constrained by politics and uh, corruption and everything else, <laughs> and human greed and all that stuff. What do you feel like? What are your hopes for the future of the pharmaceutical industry? What what uh, what would you what do you want to see? What do you think is going to happen? Or what do you yeah? Hope's so happen? so I have uh, you and I were talking before the podcast began. I just came back into the industry. Uh, and was back for two months and three days before my entire division was laid off. Mm. So I was hired back as a senior specialty rep calling on psychiatrists for a sleep med and yep. your sleep doc. Yep. Um, and it was great for me because I struggle with insomnia and this was something that I could talk about personally. I mm-hmm. felt mm-hmm. it was a good company. But one of the side effects of COVID is that psychiatrists mainly do medication management. They don't see right. patients anymore. Right. And what happened right after I came back into the industry was the company evaluated the fact that psychiatrists are not in their offices. It's all done virtually mm. and they don't need to be paying people like me to be driving around to empty offices, calling on receptionists to then tell me that the psychiatrist is, you know, behind their computer at their home office. Mm. Um, and so they laid off the entire North American division. So you asked me, what do I hope is, is going to come? I think that as we see the advancement of technology in terms of medical research, mm-hmm. that I think in cancer especially, yes. we're able to see targeted medication and yes. with uh, technology, artificial intelligence, stuff um, like IBM that are able to do these huge research initiatives yep. with artificial intelligence and be able to isolate. We've seen so much advancement. If you think about the last 10 mm. years, how many iterations of the iPhone have come out? Right. If we could apply that to, to medications mm-hmm. specifically for cancer or MS or ALS, mm-hmm. that's what I hope we will see. And then we are going to need these folks um, these old timers that have been in the industry that have been trained properly Interesting. That are experts in the field and they can go and talk to the providers because mm. the amount of information uh, 
that general practitioners have to sift through. Yeah. It, it's just not feasible unless, you know, everybody wants their doctor to be the smartest guy in the room, right? I don't want to go see a dumb doctor. Right. Um, I want to go see a, a really well-educated doctor, but even then we need to be able to have a way to get them quality education sure. and help them not just, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen with the healthcare system. What I did with Medtronic and medical device was mainly I held the patient's hand and navigated the payer system for them. Mm. Which is a whole a whole separate job. Yeah, so so that's I, I th- I'm hopeful for for what's going to come in the next couple of years. Who yeah. knows what that's going to look like? I do think that in terms of the shift towards direct primary care and mm. away from big health systems, that we mm. are going to see folks that can get that one on one relationship mm. the way that you hear their parents mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. going to see a family doctor. Yep. yep. I've just signed my one year old up with direct primary care, and I'm excited because she's going to see this doctor for the rest yep. of her life. How 1970s have you? Yeah, I know. And uh, everything old is new again. She's going to have a retro. You know, I honestly, we're talking about this. I remember when I took my first job out of college as a copier salesperson. I didn't know if I should do it or not. And my dad told me to go see Dr. Gentry. Uh, so I set up a doctor's appointment to go see my family doctor who had been my doctor my whole life specifically to ask his opinion about, should I take this job going to sell copiers in Asheville, North Carolina? Wow. And his advice to me was that John, the good Lord needs good copier salesmen as much as the good <laughs> Lord needs good doctors or good anything else. Yep. So yep. if you have that and so that, you know, that's just, those are the good old days, right? But you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure with you, that dream that there can be places and, and niches, maybe hopefully more than just a niche where there's actually a team effort to yeah. take care of our patients, make an honest living. You know, we don't, we don't need to make a billion dollars, right? you know, but let's make a nice living. Let's try to have integrity. Yeah. Let's you know, take care and, of people. Yeah. Let's take care of people. Let's work together as a team. Um, you know, and, and I think this issue of, of integrity and trust is just central. When you think about, all the areas of our society where this is, is being severely challenged. And you think oh, about yeah. news sources, you think about political leaders, religious leaders, um, uh, education, every single area of our society is, is just crying out for people of integrity, for people who have transparency, yeah. for people who, you know, they're not perfect, but they can at least, you know, own, own their biases they can identify them and say, look, I, I have a blind spot here or there. Help me see, help me see where I'm yeah. blind, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think issues of, you know, um, racial disparities, healthcare disparities, all of these areas have this thing in common where we get into our silos and we get into our, our selfish, what, what's good for me. Yeah. And then we lose sight of truth. We lose sight of, of integrity. We're blinded, frankly, by, by profit. And it doesn't start necessarily as, you know, Mr. Scrooge, you know, gnashing his teeth, going to grind the faces of the poor. Right. It doesn't start like that. It always starts with legitimate things like, Hey, I need to, uh, you know, like in your case, um, I, I need healthcare. You right. Know, that's, that's a very appropriate, we need, we need that. Right. And I think, you know, like you say, the human condition is just drawn down a path of, of in a corrupt direction. And it's our good desires that get you know, sort of redirected. And I think that's why we need each other. We need accountability and we need, um, we need people to move in and, and provide, uh, uh, unbiased education or at least, at least education that, that owns its bias, yeah. you know, that says, yeah. Hey, I'm coming at it from this angle. Show me where I'm wrong right. or, or let's have an opposing viewpoint. And right. that, I think that's really important. I think getting beyond where we just hate each other, you know, like, like you're a pharmaceutical rep and people might hear that and go, oh, he's one of the bad guys. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I know I keep picking on you about no, it, but no, I know you've I heard it your whole life. I know it's, I know. Cause I remember what it was like to be a rock star pharma rep. Exactly. You know, when people love to see me. Uh-huh. And then what the doctors did. Right? We, well, yeah. the, the patients, I've had patients with uh, Zoloft. Yeah. I remember Picking up, I was picking up baskets for Christmas that I was yep. taking to doctors and I was in this florist, whatever. And 
I had on my name tag and it had Zoloft on it. And this woman came up to me and just started crying wow. and said, Zoloft saved my life. Yeah. It saved my marriage. It saved my yep. relationship with my kids. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, you helped a lot of people. Those well, are, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, you know, that's that's one of the reasons you feel good about doing sure. your job, you know? And, and, and isn't this true of any any profession that you're in, whether you're fixing people's cars or you're, exactly. or you're a minister or you're a farmer rep or you're a doctor or you're a chiropractor or what, whatever it is you're doing. Podcast facilitator. Yeah, yeah. except no one's paying me yet. But you know. <laughs> um, Well, P- Peter gets paid. But but not me. So, uh, but yeah. So I mean, he does a great job. So he he needs to be paid, right? He's got to take uh, care of his I mean, family. Yeah. It, a lot of times, it's not even about getting paid. You you do things. I, I'm sure you've had this feeling in your life where there's no money that right. could be worth it, right? Right. You right. know, the just the feeling that you get for doing sure. something. Um, and so and anyway. that's you know that's the challenge of of trying to be a person of integrity in a world that has limits, in a world that has uh, needs, that has disease, that has, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and I've been straight up about that, but I respect other faiths. And, you know, we, we call it sin, you know, in a sinful world, we, we all fall into that sometimes. And, yeah. you know, we need help. We need help from each other. We need forgiveness. We need clarity. We need sometimes to, you know, acknowledge where we failed. Uh-huh. Some people call that confession, you know, um, this is deeply helpful, deeply honorable and good and necessary and you know like i say if we if we just end up like hating people who are on the other side we don't hear what they have to tell us about ourselves their their function as mirrors yeah you know and if we get good mirrors in front of us uh we can uh we can see our our blind spots and failings so all right john well you're you're one of the good guys and uh, that's why I asked you on because I knew you do a good job presenting this. Well, and, hey, this has been and, fun. Thank you so much for having me. This is I really enjoyed having this conversation. Awesome, and I wish you all the best in your uh, your uh, when you're selling people tasty food now. So you know that's yeah. important. Fellowship well, I was going to say what we're missing is a cold beer. Exactly. Yeah. So next <laughs> Maybe time next we time, can yeah. Do it at the brewery and have a cold beer and continue I'd, the I'd conversation. I'd love to. That would be awesome. All right. Well, uh, that about wraps it up, and. Uh, Appreciate uh, our guest tonight, uh, John John Richardson, who is uh, owner of the what? What is the current name of it? Is it Black Mountain Kitchen or so is it the w- Ale House? We did we pivoted to put food forward when okay. when the shutdown happened. So Black yep. Mountain Kitchen and Ale House, Black Mountain Brewing, Smoke Black Mountain, and uh, soon to come the Rail Yard, which will be launching sometime this next year. Very exciting. Mountain. Well, we will we will uh, make sure to drop by there and and savor the the good uh, good flavors. So great. Thanks for listening to the High Road Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel High. Be sure to leave me a comment, a review, and don't forget to subscribe to the High Road wherever you get your podcasts.